0: Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I am your host, Alex Andreu. On the show this week, Liz Truss inherits a toxic intray. Has she backed herself into a corner or will she seamlessly period to the sort of handouts she dislikes so much? Plus, in the US, there seems to be a big pushback against the predicted red wave. Are things turning around for Biden? All that and more on this week's Bunker. Welcome back to The Bunker. A quick reminder that this show relies on your support you can back us on the crowdfunding platform Patreon from as little as two pounds a month. You will get the shows early and ad-free, as well as great merchandise. In return, we promise we will deliver, we will deliver, we will deliver. <laughs> Join the Bunker Army. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Now, let's meet today's traumatized panel. First up, we have Time staff writer Yasmin Sirhan. Hello, Yasmin. Hello. In your latest piece for Time, you ponder Boris Johnson's legacy. Uh, Does his meteoric fall from a seemingly unassailable position prove that the UK system of unwritten norms and conventions actually works?
1: Well, I think it does and it doesn't. Because (laughs) there's... (laughs) I'm going to have it both ways. Um, There there is an argument that the system is pretty durable in that, you know, the press exposed Johnson's bad behaviour the public turned on him as a result of that behavior. And that drove enough conservative MPs to decide either that they shouldn't back him because of that behavior or that he's no longer the election winner that they thought he was. Mm. And then forced him to resign, even if it was um, clearly not his wish to do so. And I realize I'm setting the bar very, very low. Here, very low. But it's not like Johnson. <laughs> well, you're not
0: setting the yeah. bar. No. The bar has been set very low.
1: It's not like Johnson. Oh, I don't know stormed Westminster and instructed his followers to, you know, go raid the House of Commons and, like, you know, get Michael Gove or something, obviously making an American comparison there. <laughs> so it wasn't a January 6th, right? Like, So in that sense, yes, the system was durable. However, you have to think about all the other violations of the norms and conventions that came before the Chris Pincher scandal that mm. ultimately brought him down, mm. Chris Pincher was the straw that booked the camel's back. But if we're being honest, there were a lot of other pieces of straw there before. I mean, we're thinking of Partygate. We're thinking of um, not having an ethics advisor, ignoring Patterson. his advice. Yeah. Yes, Patterson. Um, and then, of course, Partygate itself. I mean, it did take quite a while from that. I mean, it really did feel like all the scandals had to kind of top each other before mm-hmm. it built sort of enough anger and frustration for something to happen, which is why I say I think it did and it didn't. Yes, the system was durable. However, it did take a lot of beating
2: before yeah. something
1: was to change. And I think the real test to see how durable that system is, is whether the new prime minister, whether it's Liz Truss or anyone who comes after her, whether they choose to go the Johnsonian way and break norms as well, say, not appointing yeah, yeah. an ethics vi- advisor. If they don't, and they, politics regimes to quote unquote normal, normal then um, Johnson is a passing blip, a phase. If they do, however... Then I think that's a big part of his legacy that's worth ruminating on, mm. for sure.
0: Johnson is a passing blimp, not <laughs> blimp. Um, also with us is writer and editor Justin Quirk. Hello, Justin. Hello, Alex. In his last few weeks, when the office became about service rather than ego, Johnson largely checked out. It's been a sort of farewell tour in which he dressed as a jet pilot, a policeman, a construction worker. Um, only one of the village people missing from that <laughs> said things like, buy a new kettle to be helpful, and appointed a few more cronies on his way out the door. How does that tally with the notion advanced by him and his allies that he will come back?
3: Well... I think it makes some sense in that, as with everything with Johnson, what we're dealing with is a purely reflexive, sort of self serving lizard brain. Mm. You know, it's all just about what do you have to do now to make him happy. So expecting logic or long term planning or deferred enjoyment, anyway is a sort of mistake on our part. It's like a category error. <laughs> but we also come to a point that I've made a few times on the show, which is the one way in which I do genuinely have some sympathy for Johnson is that in the last few weeks...
0: We're going to edit this out.
1: We <laughs> <laughs> might as well not say it.
3: <laughs> <laughs> no, we've got, we've got to be balanced here. You know, We'll end up in terrible trouble with the mail otherwise. Um, you know, I think in the last few weeks, as over the last few years... All he's doing is behaving exactly as he has always done, which is, for his entire career, even pre-politics, his hallmark has been treating the people who pay his wages as credulous morons. You know, he did it with readers, he did it with editors, he did it with constituents, he's now done it, you know, to the entire country. And people absolutely hoovered it up. So I'm not not surprised that he's been behaving like this until the bitter end, but I'm also not surprised that he doesn't think he'll be punished for it long-term in any way whatsoever, because... Why would he be? Mm.
0: Someone remarked on Twitter, I don't know who it was, but it was very apt that he's like a sort of medieval prince that that on his last couple of months at the door, he's like, I want to play with that toy. <laughs> now i want going to be a jet pilot. Give me the telescope. <laughs> <laughs> the final star of today's show is comedian and broadcaster Ahir Shah. Hello, Ahir. Hello. I hear two and a half years ago, Labour was twenty-two points behind. The Tories were sitting on an unassailable eighty-seat majority, and people were talking about a decade of Johnson. What happened?
2: I think that the reality of Johnson happened uh, fundamentally. You know, like well, let's if we cast our eyes back to what the situation was around the twenty nineteen general election, which fundamentally was a general election that was run on a very simple premise and one on a very simple premise this guy said right i am not jeremy corbyn and i am going to get brexit done he is not jeremy corbyn jeremy corbyn did not become prime minister and then brexit got done in some ways and Ish. we can still talk about the ways in which yeah, it's not it got necessarily. Done and
0: then slightly undone
2: yeah uh and then it just became right Boris the person, uh, actually, in this position, a person who had been talked up by himself, by the media, as the sort of person who will be prime minister one day and a person who, it always struck me, wanted to have been the prime minister uh, rather than actually being interested in the practicality of doing mm, the job yeah. and then the sort of almost sort of tragic in the in the in the dramatic uh, sense elements of this person's character came to the fore all of the the sheer sheer weight of his unsuitability for the position came to the fore. And so I don't actually think that it's particularly surprising that he did have an almighty Hmm. crash and burn.
0: In Liz, we trust, and by we, I mean a few thousand Tory members who got to pick our new prime minister again. The interminable leadership race has finally concluded. Trust will be the fourth Tory PM in a row, whose central platform will be sorting out the mess I inherited. Make of that what you will. <laughs> Popular wisdom has it that once elected, leaders pivot away from the membership and towards the country. But few leaders have made that pivot quite so difficult by turning the back to the country so decisively. Truss's campaign was full of bluff, bluster and bullshit. But faced with a cluster of crises, what will the woman described by former editor of the FT, Lionel Barber, as cartoon Thatcher, actually do? Justin, the cost of living crisis is said to dominate the first year of Truss's premiership, with some inflation estimates having it peak at 22%. We've been on repeat asking this question over the last few weeks, but does Truss have an answer to it? Is there? An answer to it
3: yeah, I mean that twenty two percent figure is absolutely eye watering and also it 's something that as a so- society, we just have no collective memory for mm. anymore mm. you know you 'd have to be probably in retirement age now to remember a time when Inflation was a, a you know serious appreciable number. Um, it came out the research from Goldman Sachs last week. Who were looking at the scenario where gas prices remain at the current level. They think the price cap increased increase by over eighty percent in January, which is going to push inflation up from this baseline of fourteen percent. I mean, this is real panic station stuff. Now, as far as we can tell, Truss does have an answer. But it's one which is grounded in very traditional right wing economic orthodoxy of cutting taxes to the tune of 30 billion. And the part, the sort of shadow side of that, which is far less articulated, is a sort of devil take the hindmost approach to businesses and individuals that just might not make the cut economically mm. you know it's quite ruthless in that sense well,
0: the, the, I mean the not so shadow side of that is that that does bugger all
3: to inflation well of course it, um, yeah, I mean it's, in, it's slightly inflationary if anything yeah and also and it strikes me particularly as someone who's self-employed the problem with anything grounded in changing the tax system and expecting that to be a panacea is that especially for people like me which an increasingly number of people are any changes to the tax system take a long time to filter through in any noticeable way to the pocketbook. You know, it's not when when people are saying, look, people are going to be freezing to death over the next three months, we need things now. You know, you need something which is probably analogous to, you know, the furlough scheme during COVID. Anything we are tinkering around with the tax code, the two main problems are it takes far too long to arrive and it does not fall fairly across the economy. you know. I, mean, I think even right-wing economists I think, do not dispute this, that if you're talking about cutting things like VAT or changing tax codes, mm. it doesn't necessarily get to the people who need it the most. As to your bigger question of, is there an answer to this? I mean, probably not in the sense that we're not going back to how things were. And I think what we're seeing across Europe at the moment is countries to varying degrees and with a varying degree of forthrightness saying to their public, look, the way things were pre the Russian invasion is not coming back. You know, I think Germany probably has done the most publicly to sort of reorientate itself. I've seen itself. several
0: public information campaigns, all of which are uh, intended to reduce consumption.
3: Yeah. I've seen
0: not a jot here. There's literally a tweet going around that it's not even from a government source saying what sort of different household appliances burn, yeah. which I didn't know. I didn't, you know... I didn't know that a microwave burns a lot less than, you know, an oven or... I mean, I could kind of guesstimate, but I wouldn't mm. have thought that it burns a lot less than a kettle, for instance, which it does, or that a large flat-screen TV is negligible in mm. in the sort of electricity it uses. Why isn't the, the government putting this mm. stuff out?
3: Well, I think it was because we've had this weird interregnum of almost sort of two months where, you know, everything's just been on hold and nothing serious is getting done. And in the meantime, as you say, if you look to the continent, allied with that sort of more open and forthright public discussion you're seeing really concrete measures coming through germany's just announced today a 65 billion euro package of price caps and windfalls have very aggressive windfall taxes on energy suppliers um and then bigger structural things you know germany's been experimenting with you know nine euro public transport across the whole country i think spain is about to bring in effectively free public transport as a way of holding down inflation and also reducing energy use but then there's also much Deeper issues in this country, which Rachel Reeves has been very good at highlighting about, you know, questions about that have sort of dogged this country for a long time. You know, wage stagnation, low productivity, you know, low innovation levels in companies. Yeah, and yeah. those. Yeah, there's sort there's of no medium to long term yeah.
0: stuff. Yeah. Um, we'll talk about that. I was tickled today to see uh, um, Susie Dent uh, tweet the word Zugzwang, which is a chest term in German which means it's a move you have to make even though it takes you closer to defeat <laughs> even though you know it's going to make your situation even more shit but you're cornered and you have to make a move and it seems to me that's roughly where we are at the moment with inflation and um, Trust, though, comes in with exceptionally low public expectations. There was a YouGov poll on Monday that found only 12% expect her to be a good prime minister, 20% expect her to be average, and a staggering 52% think she will be poor or very poor. Um, Will such low expectations be a mountain to get over or actually an advantage?
3: I think they would actually been an advantage in this situation i think when you talk about you know from a sort of marketing or a branding perspective low expectations always help in hospitality we talk about under promise and over deliver mm. you know it's why you call rooms use i it. hate
0: to break it to you justin it's a wider term <laughs> <laughs> it's,
3: it's not just in the hospitality ah, game. <laughs> but i think that will definitely be the case i mean we saw a version of this you know over the last few years with trump where you know people expected so little of him as his just sort of like horny chimpanzee kind of pinballing <laughs> around the system But at any time when he managed to act in the most just a recognisably human way they'd be like, ah, oh, finally the day Trump became presidential. <laughs> it's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, you think
0: with Johnson, he'd have a haircut, and everyone would go, yeah. oh, he's had a haircut. Uh, he's, he's grown he's into eternal
3: the world. statesman-like. <laughs> but I think, you know, she, and I think we're coming in with such, such, I mean, you know, Yasmin talked about the bar being I mean, the bar is subatomic at this yeah. stage, and I think she'll score a few successes early on. You know, she's not, you know, whatever we think in the public you know, the public view of her. She's clearly not without talent. She's clearly not a moron. You know, you don't get that far in life without having some sort of rat cunning about you. Mm. She will... And I I think Mm. there's a good piece in The Critic today that a guy from a think tank's written about, where he just said, look, yes, she's quite weird and awkward in public life. In person, you know, at least compared to Johnson, you know, she's hardworking, she's reasonably diligent. And again, I'm aware these are very, very low bars we're setting. I think she'll score a few moderate successes early on. I'd imagine she'll be in Kiev within Mm. 10 days. There'll be a photo call there that goes on the front of all the papers. And that will be, you know, the line that the mail, et cetera, go with. And it will you know, people will expect so little that maybe that'll do a bit of good.
2: When you say things like, oh, it was reasonably diligent and hardworking and things, and I just have Chris Rock in my head <laughs> yelling, that's what you're supposed to be! <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah.
0: Um, I hear on Sunday, Truss spoke to Laura Kunzberg on the BBC. She said nothing, so let's not discuss it. But comedian Joe Lycett caused a bit of a storm by being sarcastically enthusiastic. But did he hit the nail on the head, actually? Is that where he triggered so many people?
2: Yeah, well, I think for anyone who hasn't watched uh, what Joe did, I do recommend it uh, incredibly. And he, he did just, like, he, he satirised the entire thing by just revealing the paucity of the entire thing, right? Yeah. Just saying that, like, just it, it's actually staggering that a uh, comedian... Calmly saying that was very clear, and I learned a lot, uh, and everything <laughs> is is somehow seen as like so unspeakably rude <laughs> in many ways. How could you ever? Well, we know that you can't be telling the truth because it's, it's obvious to all of us, and it, and it just revealed that it is obvious to all of us, right? Yeah. That all, all of this, uh, all of this programming sort of relies on people coming onto it lying to your face when they say anything at all and you having to go, yes, yes, that's very illuminating because then, I don't know, you lose the the next time or what have you. So it was basically as simple as Joe being a person sat there saying that the emperor has no clothes. And I thought that it was going to be one of those things like do, do you remember when um when diane abbott had uh the mojito on the overground and people uh pe- people talked about it saying that like oh and no one ever gave her a rest for having a mojito on the overground one time and yet people get away with all of that and uh, you're like okay there was like one news story saying yeah, that yeah. uh diane abbott had a mojito on the over- and i thought that this would be a similar thing where i was like come on no one ever is going to have had a go at Joe Lysett for doing something pretty funny, pretty innocuous, pretty revealing and everything in a way that actually you should hope for. Uh, on this of course, what I hadn't contended with was that, of course, present company accepted uh, political journalists are the only people more self-important about their profession <laughs> than my own. And so people were taking this as an entirely unreasonable thing uh, for him to have done, or rather rather uh, certain sections of the lobby were taking it as Mm -hmm. an entirely unreasonable uh, thing to have done, which obviously culminated in uh, Daily Mail front page. Which is very much a, a dream come true from yeah, a, a, yeah. A, a comedian's perspective. I think absolutely... the Daily Mail loved Joe Hunt <laughs> before, you know. Yeah. And this this
0: just spoils it for them. I mean, today Liz trusts in her little uh, acceptance speech. Today being Monday. Um, said a line that was repeated by Brandon Luce afterwards in the interview. She said, this contest shows the depth of talent in the Conservative <laughs> Party. And it just occurred to me that if Joe Lycett had said that, this yeah. would be from the <laughs> <world>. <laughs> <laughs> this, is,
2: this is sort of what Joe said. Joe got ahead of the uh, statement by saying that, you know, is that other people may say that this is the dregs of what the Tories have to offer <laughs> and that Liz Truss is sort of the backwash after 12 years ago. But I, of course, wouldn't say that uh, because I'm incredibly right wing, uh, as as he uh, said. So, yes, it, he got there ahead of it. And just through saying it in his voice, uh, revealed quite how ridiculous uh, a statement that is. Hmm. Yasmin,
0: she has boxed herself in a little bit by saying no new taxes, no handouts. Why, in spite of her being miles ahead in the polls, did she continue to make these ridiculous pledges and to pound Sunak with very negative messaging, trashing the government's record so far? I mean, ev- everyone, any political I've spoken to, does not understand, like once it was patently <laughs> clear in the polls, and most Conservative members had actually voted because they mm. tend to vote by mail, why she just kept doing it.
1: I think it's the same reason that she made that kind of silly comment about Macron, the jury being out on him being a friend or foe, knowing that this is someone she's going to work with in the future. I think she said it because that's what she believed conservative voters wanted to hear. I mean, I think that that's at least that's how I fundamentally understood it. And I I think it goes back to the reasons that you were talking about in terms of sort of that right wing economic sort of response. of like she Mm. wants to be seen as Thatcher reincarnated Lower taxes, smaller state. I mean, these are those are kind of the bread and butter, right, of, of, of members. And I, I don't claim to know conservative party members particularly well. <laughs> they're, they're a small bunch, less than one percent of the population. So you know, the, the odds of running into them are are quite <laughs> quite small. But it's like I, a lynx or a snowman. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a unicorn you <laughs> spotted one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think she said that because. She felt that that's what she had to say in the moment. I think she probably also believes, and she's probably not entirely wrong, that once she gets into number 10, she's going to be able to say whatever she then thinks is right for the moment, having assessed the situation and and what is, you know, potentially what... I mean, at that point, she's going to care not just about what Tory members think, but what the entire country thinks. Not because... And I mean, actually, no, an election isn't around the corner, but it is two years away. That isn't a long time. I don't envy her position. She has a litany of things to sort of deal with in such a short period of time and at some stage very soon late 2024, early 2025, she is going to be facing the broader electorate. So I I would expect her.
0: It's interesting, we were talking with her here about the sort of things that were Johnson's failings. Mm -hmm. But I was thinking earlier that there are also things that failed to save Johnson, because he didn't put them in place. He surrounded himself with cronies and loyalists, rather than the smartest people he could genuinely find. He failed to put sufficiently robust ethics checks around him, knowing he's a shyster. I mean, the safe thing would be to appoint a chief of staff and an ethics person that would keep him on a short leash. Um, And he also didn't reach out to people who had not chosen him. And... The thing that almost saved him was his reputation as an election winner. And I see Truss making exactly the same mistakes, not appointing an ethics chief, surrounding herself with a cabinet that by all means looks like the people who shouted loudest for her. And, but without his saving grace of being a proven election winner. Mm -hmm. So this could be a really rough ride, I think.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I think I would, I've been speaking to loads of people over the past week about, you know, what this portends for the Conservative Party going forward. I mean, like, let's face it, I I, I do want to be fair to Liz Truss in that, you know, she's she's new to it. I know it's going to go very poorly. Like, she just has – I've spoken to people who, like, you know, even, even speaking to people who used to work for Theresa May, saying that, like, basically the biggest kind of most daunting intray – that a prime minister has faced in my lifetime. These are people that worked for Theresa May. I mean, she had one big challenge, but the rest of the policy issues were pretty much benign. With Liz Truss, she has so many. Um, But the reason I said all that was because I think, to your point, I don't think she has the charisma that Johnson had. Mm. I don't think she's seen as public. And who knows, maybe a, a an Instagram shoot in in Kiev or, or something else will will potentially help booster her image at least for the short while. But that's the thing; I think it will be a short while because I think she's going to, as one person put it to me today, have a very modern honeymoon where it's a week. Yeah, she's back to yeah, work yeah, on yeah. Monday. Um,
0: that's funny. Yeah. I wonder. I wonder if the lionization of her entry is not part of the trust campaign speak uh, because I mean. Johnson with a pandemic and sort of
1: true, the, but he didn't you, start that way, right? I mean, he had to get Brexit done, but you're right. Sure,
0: but Brexit, management. then yeah. pandemic, then Ukraine. You could yeah. argue that's not a great inbox. Oh, either. of course, and you yeah. could argue that that's why you elect these fucking people to deal with that kind of inbox, if right? If I were
1: her, I'd be talking it up as well. I'd be like, look, there's well, I a think lot is. of challenges. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I it's think it's smart. her
0: people saying, oh, you know, it's the most difficult inbox any Prime Minister's ever had. Um, I mean, but I mean try, try, yeah. try coming in in the middle of the Second World War, I'd say to
2: you, <laughs> that's quite an inbox. Um, but I also, I, I, I would just say that I, I have... You know, some some sympathy in the sense that you have sympathy with another human being who is going through a difficult professional experience or whatever, but also limited sympathy in the sense that it's like you wa- you want to do this. This is the job that you are... Going for, and it goes all the way back to Mr. Prime Minister. What's most likely to throw governments off course? Well, yeah. events, dear boy. And it's like if you if you aren't ready for events, dear boy, to be coming or events, dear boy, or whatever, uh, to, to be coming at you, then why are you going for this? I I I am not someone who would be. Personally, professionally, mentally, intellectually, capable of dealing with an intray that size, so I don't have one. Right? Like I, I don't put myself in a position where
0: I would have. I would point. I would point to an additional difference, which is you didn't have a hand in creating the really (laughs) shitty intray. She has. Yasmin, we talked a lot about her intray, about all this pressing stuff. But there's a, there's other stuff that's more mid-term and macro that that is sort of equally pressing mm. because if you don't do something about it now it will be a millstone round your neck later so trade investment inward investment it's tanking in this country the value of the currency productivity regional inequality social care Scotland northern ireland you know can all of these pots be put on the back burner indefinitely, while she deals with a sort of bills, bills, bills.
1: There's not enough room in the kitchen, I think, <laughs> for all of those like, Um I think some of them will force their way onto the front burner in some stage or another. And I mean, I think just pointing to like Scotland and Northern Ireland, for yeah. example, uh, trust's promises regarding the Northern Ireland Protocol and the potential undermining of the mm. delicate trading arrangement there. I mean, people aren't going to forget what she said, I mean, I think I've seen some headlines kind of suggesting that maybe things won't be, you know, maybe she won't quite trigger trigger is it Article 16 yeah, 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 yeah. straight away. But, you know, I think that's something that is, can't be ignored either. And I think people are going to zo- zoom in on it as well when it comes to sort of her relations with the EU and sort of that. It's
0: going to be an interesting one that, you know, because the sort of help she gives in terms of bills doesn't apply to Northern Ireland because they, they're part of a unified mm. energy market with the rest of Europe. So they need to make their own arrangements. And unless they have a working assembly, they can't. Right. So, yeah. so any cap, as I understand it, wouldn't apply to Northern Ireland. And you have a situation there where the DUP are refusing to join the assembly government. And unless they do, the people of Northern Ireland won't be able to get help with their bills. So that might come to a head a lot sooner than than anyone thinks. Can I ask all of you, Sunak will be on the back benches having taken a pasting, not as much as everyone thought, I have to say. Mm. It wasn't like the 75-25 the uh, result that a lot of the polls were envisaging. Um, Johnson will also be on the back benches. Um, on past form, I mean, he says he's unconditionally supportive of weak uh, list trust. On past form, this means he will start lobbing mortars by the end of the week. <laughs> there are apparently 12 MPs already preparing letters, according to the Mirror, to try and reinstall him. And uh, markets today have him favourite to be the next PM after it Quality <laughs> so, comeback, yeah. <laughs> um, how much of a pain will people like Sunak, like, you know, the first thing she's going to do is introduce a major finance package. How much of a pain will people like Sunak and Johnson be from the back benches? Do you think they'll keep quiet to start with, or do you think they'll get stuck in straight away? All of you. I mean
1: no. I-, I guess I'll just say that I anticipate Johnson being more of a problem for trust than Sunak, purely because we have to remember that he's more popular than both of them combined as far as Tory members are concerned. So he, as I think in his own head, knows that there's still a bit of viability. And I would imagine someone as ambitious as him or as a here noted, someone who likes the idea of being prime minister as mm. much as him mm. is probably not going to let that go. And if we know he's going to the back benches, I mean, attention is automatically going to be drawn to him. And that's before he gets his new column in whatever Newspaper gives it to him for the pretty penny that they offer him. So I suspect him being more trouble purely because I think people are going to focus in on him more. Sunak may make the odd intervention or two, but I see him more naturally going. He's not even a former leader, but kind of a Theresa May route on the back benches or just leaving. I don't Mm. see Johnson leaving because why would you give up the 80 a year, but I don't know, what
2: do you guys think? I think what I would say on that is, I think for both of them it's a question of are they even going to stick around uh, to do this, like Rishi Sunak could comfortably go to California and continue to be richer than God and all of that sort of thing. Will he want to stick around in a a parliament where he isn't a senior member of government? That remains to be seen. Uh, Similarly with uh, Boris Johnson, I think something that's uh, underrated is the fact that the Conservative Party are spectacularly unpopular. He, outside of the membership of the Conservative Party, is spectacularly unpopular and doesn't have a huge majority in his constituency. And so I think that the prospect of him genuinely relishing the prospect of continuing till a general election in a couple of years where he may well then lose that seat in what will be that year's Portillo moment or something, mm. that doesn't strike me as something that would fill him with a sense of, mm. yes, and I will fight tooth and claw for this. And fundamentally, the other question Is based on uh, is something that none of us in this uh, booth know the answer to, but part of it is how many sets of school fees is he currently paying, and (laughs) consequently, how much money does he need to make, and how quickly does he need to to make it? the,
0: The scuttlebug is that Nadine Dorries will move to the Lords, where she will devote herself to writing Johnson erotic fan fiction, and he will be parachuted in her into a very safe seat received wisdom seems to be the public will not wear another general election. But there are those pointing out that Truss basically only has the fiscal headroom to make one big intervention that will buy her goodwill with the public. What do you think are the chances of an early election?
3: You know, I'm, I'm really in two minds about this. I mean, I think, you know, we always say, oh, the public won't go for, you know, another election. Another vote. In reality, if an election is called everything kicks into gear, people will turn up yeah, and vote. Um, I just don't see any way in which the Tories will see this as the right time to call one. I mean, their numbers are absolutely underwater right now. Mm. The boost they would have to get from Trust and whatever her first round of interventions are would have to be huge. I mean, it would have to be like the boost Sunak got from you know the furlough scheme, yeah. but on steroids. Um
0: I mean, I mean don't also, want to... though, th- th- you have to believe that they will get a better boost at some point, because otherwise you'd go for it, right? If you got a 10% boost yeah. um, and you think it's only going to last six months, you'd still go for it. That's still the logical thing to do.
3: I mean, I think they may be thinking, and this is not wise tactics or strategy, but I think they may be thinking if things are just so febrile in politics and global affairs at the moment cling on as long as you can and hope that some enormous black swan event turns things around for you Mm. because otherwise you know if the alternative is going to an election campaign chasing a 10 point deficit with an incredibly uncharismatic leader and I think you know to the point about Johnson earlier I think my guess would be because he's fundamentally a sly coward he will do the Uriah Heap routine from the back benches And then just pump absolute bile out through the mail and the spectator and who at Telegraph and whoever else will have him.
0: Joe Biden had looked all but set for complete midterm annihilation only a few months ago, similar to the battering Obama took after his first term. But now that seems less likely. He's pushed through a big economic package, is doing better in the polls, and the Democratic base seems fired up. In a speech last week, he went on the offensive, framing the midterms as effectively an essential battle in an existential war. He said, MAGA forces are determined to take this country backwards, backwards to an America where there is no right to choose, no right to privacy, no right to contraception, no right to marry who you love. Yasmin, with the midterms just over two months away, how is the polling looking at the moment?
1: So I think it's it's worth noting that for the midterms, there are a lot of different races in various states. So it's mm. kind of hard to gauge. However, yeah. I think the signals that we are seeing are a bit more positive than I think they otherwise would be. and. Midterms in general, the party in power always typically loses <laughs> support in some way. Um it's it's always a referendum on their leadership up to that point. And if I'm not mistaken, most of all, all presidents have like, in at least in recent years, have lost either the House or the Senate or, or yeah. something. Yeah, yeah. So midterms are never I think people don't go into midterms thinking this is gonna be great if you're the party in power. However, the Democrats have done well in a couple of special elections, our term for by-elections. Um, and I'm thinking notably of Alaska, because if if listeners are familiar with Sarah Palin, she <laughs> lost um, a contest. Which or is...
0: Tina Fey. They oh, are, Tina Fey. are interchangeable. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> which is pretty significant, right? Because Sarah Palin was such a rah-rah Trump person. Um, and I think that's... And Alaska is
0: such a safe... Um... Republican state.
1: Precisely. Yeah. So that is kind of a big deal. I think what we're also seeing in the polling is that abortion, and of course, this is connected to the Supreme Court's decision on Roe v. Wade, is polling, I think more than half of Americans consider that to be a major Mm. issue that Mm. they'll be bearing in mind when they're going to the polls. So yeah, I mean, I think the Biden administration has had some boosts. These are special elections, though. So I think I'm still going into this Somewhat wary. However, I do think it's an interesting choice that he's made to frame the midterms as a referendum on Trump or as almost a forewarning that Mm. we need to act now to ensure that Trump or his acolytes don't come back in two years time.
0: So it's important to say for listeners that when you're looking at the polling for the midterms, even though the Democrats are doing slightly better and are even a bit ahead, they're still likely to lose the Senate because they're contesting basically more seats. So they're more vulnerable. There are more seats that they can lose. And so it becomes naturally more likely that they will lose the Senate. Um, Yasmin Biden began began as a sort of unity president. How significant do you think is this shift in tone? Is it permanent? Is it a change of tactic?
1: I think it's significant and an important change of tactic that arguably should have come sooner. I mean, Mm. I I understand the impulse to come in post-Trump and to want to try and unify the country. But even as an American who doesn't live there, it is patently obvious to, I think, anyone watching that this is a country that is not going to be unified by one man, let alone Joe Biden. Um, I, I think that the country is so far divided. And frankly, I mean, you know, when I occasionally appear on my Trump Supporting Relatives Facebook pages, which is how I kind of keep the pulse on <laughs> what's going on on that side Sorry of America. Sorry Thank, uh, Thanks for doing yeah. that so
0: we don't have to.
1: It's fundamentally clear that we live, and you know, these are people I love, but we live in fundamentally different realities in terms of mm. sort of mm. the way they see it. You know, I, and, and I think, you know, all of us around this table, see what's happening in the U.S. and Trump's rhetoric is threatening kind of the American project and American democracy. Mm. But as far as, you know, Trump supporters are concerned, that project's already been threatened. It's already ruined because an election was stolen. So having unity and Joe Biden coming out saying, let's all come together, not that he was being that kumbaya about it, isn't really going to work. And I think if you have a threat as serious as Trump continuing to undermine the election and insisting that you know it, he be reinstated, you have to call that out. You have to call whether you use the term fascism or whatever. I think it's important that he's made the shift.
2: It seems like the Republican position is basically Anakin Skywalker saying, "But from my point of view, the Jedi are evil." And it's like, <laughs> dude, you just killed loads of children. That's um, you hmm. just
0: blew up Endor. Yeah. <laughs> There's no accounting for that. Justin, is there any way to bring the US together or? must one side actually vanquish the other completely in order to to sort of cauterise that wound?
3: It's very difficult to assess. I mean, it's obviously, as Yasmin said, it's completely fractured politically in the two main parties. It's gone beyond a division that you can sum up ideologically to the very basis of whether or not there is a commitment to democratic norms. You know, so I mean, that's beyond anything that you could move in terms of Mm -hmm. policy or the people. Um, And, yeah, the challenge goes back to... Really, when Obama first won and, you know, after Republicans lost, then they had this long internal inquest into how they could win in a country which structurally was changing. You know, it's becoming, you know, more intermingled, more socially diverse, more liberal, more multiracial. And they the can- urban populations yeah. that used to
0: vote Democrat are now in the
3: suburbs, which is a huge shift. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, those sort of ex-urban uh, changes. And they came up with a lot of really sensible findings about how you could divorce political conservatism from the sort of reactionary social fringe, all of which completely went out the window with Trump, <laughs> at which point the calculus became that if you can't win an election by traditional means because the country is changing, you don't adapt yourself. You just bend the rules through gerrymandering, voter suppression, and ultimately just rejection of the the entire democratic process itself. And now as to whether that how that wound could be healed... I think a lot rides on whether or not Trump is prosecuted. Now, there's obviously a vexed question and it comes with risks on both sides. I think I'm on the side that the precedent of not prosecuting is a greater risk to the country. And I I think that there's a reasonable argument that even with Trump gone, which he will be at some point, Trumpism remains. And I think, you know, this is one of the risks associated with, Mm. say, I mean, Ron DeSantis, I think, is probably the heir apparent there. But I do think there is something which is very specific to Trump personally. I think there is a kind of rat cunning and cult of personality, which he has, which I think anyone else will struggle to replicate. Mm.
0: Um, as Yasmin mentioned, there have been a few results. You know, the first Democrat again gain Alaska's congressional seat in more than half a century, the Kansas result. Um, do you think my instinct when the tone began to change, was that this was a mistake, that it was only going to fire up Trump's base and and kind of backfire. But I think I got it wrong looking at these results. I think it it is actually, in large part, the Roe v. Wade decision that has fired up uh, the Democratic base and they need a leader that kind of echoes them that kind of echoes their anger mm. um do you think there is a danger that the the republican base will respond to this um hardening of rhetoric to being called you know fascists some of them um with turning up in larger numbers at the ballot box and actually backfire in the end
3: i don't i don't think so i mean the I think what's been really interesting with the abortion decision that you mentioned there is it's completely flipped that sort of power dynamic because for 50 years, abortion has essentially been a free shot for Republicans. It was an issue on which they could talk extremely tough, they could make huge promises about, and, you know, when I'm in power, we'll do mm, this, 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 mm. knowing that they would probably never have to do anything and they would never be held accountable for. It is, you know, as the phrase was often used around Brexit, it's the dog's caught, you know, the dog's caught yeah, the yeah, car. Yeah. And they now have to do something about it and the repercussions are already predictably awful Yeah, you know the stories even at this early stage that we're getting coming out of states that have gone for the hardest interpretations of this you know doctors just placed in impossible positions with you know women who have ectopic pregnancies and now into what well, do we let them bleed out or can we operate are we going to be prosecuted I mean it's, it's terrible and, and this is really cutting through and there's even you know footage of Senators who voted for this stuff now sitting in you know, the House are sort of saying, well you know i didn 't realize this was going to be the repercussion for it, so could have given that some thought before but and I think but what they have on the Democratic side now is a large number of voters who previously were not massively motivated about voting are now extremely motivated and extremely angry um, and I think the other risk for the Republicans is that it 's such an an emotive issue which they have used to their favor over the past decades. It has this huge halo effect and crowds out almost all other policy discussions. Mm, and if every mid, if every midterm vote, they want it to be about critical race theory, about drag queen story hour, about tax, about you know, lockdown mandates, gun laws, et cetera, et cetera. The risk for them, I think now, is that every midterm vote essentially becomes a referendum on whether or not you have access to safe reproductive health care.
0: Biden has also submitted documentation for 2024. run. that doesn't definitely mean he will run, but it's a possibility. If he wins a second term, Biden, he'll be 86 when he leaves office. Is, is that an issue? Should it be? Because put- we we all have a kind of instinctive reaction to it. But actually, if you look at it historically, presidents have been really old dudes.
1: Yeah, I, I think what's kind of worrying to me, because I was looking at the polling, because obviously I think a majority of Democrats don't want him to run again. But mm. the challenge then, because if, even if you do look at the polls of like who's potentially popular, you have Bernie Sanders, who's 80. Yeah. So that just dis- disqualifies if you're basing, the if, if the primary opposition to Biden is age or maybe a number of factors. But there's just no clear successor. And I think that's kind of the worrying thing that –
0: I mean, Trump as well. He's he's not exactly right. paddling in the deep end of the paper plate pool.
1: <laughs> we definitely. I mean, if, if we could take one lesson from the UK, is I think the US should try having younger leaders. And that's not me being ageist. I think it's just purely off the fact that like we need to train the next generation. And if you're keeping all these positions of power, in the sort of I don't know. Mm. I just it, mm. it, it. I I think it's high time. And I think that's uh, that's a belief that a lot of certainly Democrats I think have shared saying that they were toying between Biden and Sanders. And they're both great politicians, but we need to have a future for the Democratic Party. And I think the fact that, you know, there's the Gavin Newsom's of this world, the governor of my great home state of California. There's Pete Buttigieg, who's run before. There's Kamala Harris, of course. Mm. But I don't know, and I don't think we'll know until it's tested, just how popular they are and whether this is going to be a divisive thing for the Democrats, where they're suddenly fighting amongst themselves again Mm. to sort of...
0: Interesting. And yeah. unless they sort of get together and sort of choose a, a, a successor, as it were, without a massive bruising. Public and it's
1: never been that simple, right? No. Yeah, it's no. never been that simple.
0: Um, Justin, if Congress is split, so if they lose the Senate, how difficult will that make Biden's life trying to pass legislation and in an and an additional question if they lose the senate does it actually matter if they lose you know the house as well because everything will get stuck in the senate anyway
3: yeah i mean i mean i think the the optics of it matter you know if you lose both sure. then yeah it sure. looks terrible um, most likely, I mean, it'll be a gridlock. Um, it's been pretty close to that already over the last, you know, couple of years legi- in legislative terms. Now, historically, that's not necessarily a disaster. I mean, if you go back, even within pretty recent memory, like Reagan passed a lot of the tax legislation in the mid '80s through periods where the Democrats controlled the House of Representatives. Clinton, uh, and I, was, I actually went back and checked this, and I was surprised given how you know what a vexed character Clinton was in many ways. Clinton's welfare legislation went through a Republican-dominated House. Um, But the problem now is that it feels like there's almost no spirit of compromise on the Republican side and then increasingly on the Democrats in response. So I'd be sort of
0: obstruction for the sake of obstruction.
3: Yeah, the sort of which I guess is kind of a post Newt Gingrich thing. You know, it comes from the the Gingrich sort of mindset of just grind the system to a halt if you can't be in charge of it. So, yeah, I'm not overly confident that um, that would anything would get done there one thing that I think is worth mentioning as well that's interesting in the polling at the moment is in a way that you don't normally see around the midterms Biden's own personal ratings not great but have gone up a little bit they're not seeming to be a drag on the wider party and wider Democratic candidates. Mm. Normally, the leader's popularity tracks that very closely. He seems to have kind of separated off from that in some ways. So I think with things like, you know, we mentioned the Kansas, Kansas vote and Alaska, um, local Democrats seem to be outperforming Biden himself, mm, which is encouraging for the party.
2: A lot of what's happening with Trump and these secret documents and what have you, it seems like everything with him feels baked in, in the sense of the Republicans who were supporting him publicly, the politicians and stuff, they're doing the same. With this, nothing seems like it's going to change for that segment of the population and of the political class there who are just inhabiting this particularly uh, different reality. I think that the thing about is... This raid helping or hindering the Republicans' chances, or also what I've heard about Biden's speech about MAGA Republicans being, there being many semi-fascists who are not comfortable with just the reality of democracy. And it gets framed through this prism of, is this going to help or hinder the electoral chances of the, and I just think sometimes you do have to say this shit, uh, <laughs> right? Like, it, it's very important. To be, is like, oh, well, will it affect Democrat turnout if uh, Biden is uh, calling some people semi fascists who aren't comfortable with uh, democracy and the rule of law? It's like, no, you say it because there are a bunch <laughs> of semi fascists who are not comfortable with democracy yeah, and right, the rule of burning. law. Simmer down.
0: <laughs> Simmer down. <laughs> The news, for the most part, is pretty bleak at the moment, to say the least. But amid the noise, there are still some little moments of joy. In Oakland, the public library has opened an exhibit of the sweetest items left inside books. They include family photos, unfinished letters, postcards, boarding passes, pressed flowers, and occasionally messages to borrowers of that book. In sharp contrast with the polarity and venom of most discourse, it paints a collage of humanity as a warmer, more nuanced, more surprising community. I hear at a time of flux and sadness and just danger, how important can these small, bright spots
2: be? I think that they're spectacularly important to all of us. I, I had the pleasure yesterday of I was cycling to the train station and walking down the road by me looked like maybe 18-year-old kid, 17, 18-year-old kid or what have you and he had his phone to his ear and I couldn't hear it was cycling past very quickly uh, but he hung up his phone and then smiled from ear to ear and just did a fist pump of yes yes <laughs> like whatever had happened. and I don't know whether it was you know someone said yes to going on a date with him or he's uh, got an interview for a job or he's got maybe he's going to uni or, or, or something had happened you- that had made his week or made his month and that made my day could he have the- just
0: recognised the legend the that- legend it yes.
2: <laughs> was like, Could oh my been. god! <laughs> I'm sure that guy was in Jurassic
1: World for about four
2: microseconds. That's,
3: <laughs> That's the wise cracking
1: pterodactyl.
3: Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> um, are there any little things that you focus on when you need to fend off cynicism, like when it all gets really bad? Where do you, where's your go-to?
2: Well, I think that I'm uh very very fortunate uh in that I have a steady stream of photographs of my five month old nephew uh being sent to me by my sister. Right. Uh and so anytime it's uh you know discussions of what's going to happen in Liz Truss's premiership or what have you, and I'm like this little guy has absolutely no idea of any of that. He's just gurgling and having a ball. And uh, I'll See him next week and give him a big hug. And that'll babies make things babies a bit are a good
0: one. Yasmin, um, do you think we not notice small kindnesses and beautiful things more in times of difficulty? Or do we get this tunnel vision and go into battle mode and actually miss a lot of good stuff happening?
1: I think it's easy to miss them, especially if you're... <laughs> your like t- twitter feed is filled with despair like mine often is <laughs> though I will say there it is funny I feel like I see it more on TikTok and I need to stop being the person that only brings up TikTok but I've noticed that there's this Kind of genre of video now where people do these small acts of kindness for other people. I don't know if you guys have seen these, whether it's giving someone flowers or paying for their lunch or things like that. And this is we-
2: definitely in America, isn't it?
1: Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um,
2: someone gives me flowers. What's going on here? <laughs>
1: but, but it's, I mean, you know, in a way you think, oh, it's contrived. They're doing it for the clout. But, you know, in a small way you're like, Actually, that's quite sweet. So when I see those, I'm like, it's almost kind of inspiring of like, what are the small things you could do to change someone's day, like make someone's day better?
0: Justin, as commentators, I guess, do we focus enough on good stories um, or is it only negativity
3: that translates to clicks? I think that's always been the model, but I think it's shifting. Um, I mean, we saw the huge growth through the pandemic of news platforms which focus purely on positive stories. There's yeah. a bunch of them, mainly on Instagram. These sort have of started, but huge audiences for those. Um, and I think, you know, if you look at the kind of lifestyle end of podcasts and a lot of the people and celebrities who've built huge followings, you know, it's about this sort of very gentle, you know, sort of kind, be nice to yourself, be nice to people around your model. And What celebrities are they? Well, someone like Fern Cotton, who was basically a sort of bog-standard, you know, ITV, kids' TV presenter. Oh, amazing. Yeah, now has a massive following based pretty much on just, you know, here's how you can be kind to each other. And, you know, it's sort of... So maybe it's about what people expect, I guess, because, you know, people seem to expect
0: politics and anger from me when (laughs) I try to do something sort of fluffy and kind. My following pretty much looks at me like I farted in a lift.
3: <laughs> seriously, you've got, you got to like, manage the expectations. What is it's this?
0: Like, yeah. <laughs>
2: like Liz, Liz
3: Truss's team, you've got to manage the expectations. But I, but I think the, the more serious point of that is it's it's providing people with somewhat practical ways to manage the stress of life better. Um, but I think one, the flip side of that, which I think is noticeable, is as people have more of an appetite for good news, I think it's really noticeable how crazed and out of touch the tabloids look these days. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, like, I've always disliked The Sun, but the thing you could always say was they had an incredible instinct for just zoning in on what the public thought and wanted to hear. You look off those front pages nowadays, like the Mail one we discussed, the Joe Lysett cover, that's a classic example. I would say 90% of male readers have no idea who Joe Lysa is. He was on a show that 90% of them will not have watched. And I was looking at that front page you going, what's the point of this? It's just weird bile for its own sake. So mm. I think, yeah, I think broadly people want things which are a bit more positive and uplifting.
0: Thank yeah, you. weird bile for its own sake is sort of the byline <laughs> underneath but it. You're doing
3: it in a, a nice face. voice.
0: <laughs> right, let me ask all of you. Have you ever found something in a borrowed item or a second-hand thing that you purchased that made you just pause and go,
3: ah, anyone? I have a second, very second-hand copy of an old Big Youth reggae album, which I bought sight unseen online. It's very cheap. It said, you know, because I had quite a heavily damaged sleeve. That's fine, I just want the record. And the sleeve was damaged because the owner, who I think was a, 16, 17-year-old woman at some point in the mid-70s had detailed her entire love life on the sleeve with, you know, Karen for... (laughs) And there was... You know, these guys obviously didn't last long. They came and went. And there was about 15, 16 of these sort of different names all over the sleeve, all over the inner bag of the record. And it's... uh. She obviously had a high old time of it for some period in the mid-late 70s. I thought Karen from Wolverhampton, you know, God bless you. And I hope I mean, she must be in her 60s. Now oh, I Karen, think, if you're listening, yeah. what's the what's the name of the album? The album is uh, Natty Cultural Dread by get, Big Get U. in <laughs> touch, Karen, if that's you.
0: We've got your love life and we're willing to exchange it for money. Hmm. How about you?
2: Uh, I always like to... Um, in my family, we'll often write um, things on the insides of uh, books when we, you know, give them to one another yeah. and what have you. And I, uh, I've i got a book on my shelf at home that I picked up off my parents' books. It's a book of Leonard Cohen's poetry. Uh, and on the inside front cover, uh, when I opened it, I saw that my father had uh, written um, on our anniversary to my favourite poet, uh, to my mother. Uh, and I thought that that was very uh, nice. Uh, that <laughs> that sort of makes me different. feel quite nice when I think about that.
0: That is adorable. How about you? Oh
1: gosh!
2: If there isn't something, there isn't something. I we was can just
1: say I don't know because we're running good. over. Yeah, yeah, in, yeah
2: it's so fine. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. Weirdly, my dad also wrote that to means mum <laughs> 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 <Hang on. laughs> <laughs> like... <laughs> is awful. I've had
3: It's your dad, Boris Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> it might be. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And that brings us to the end of this week's bunker, which means it's time for the panel's escape routes. What are the books, films, and TV shows that have given our panelists a break from the bruising world of politics? Super quick roundup. How about you?
3: I'm reading the recently reissued uh, Bill Brewster and Frank Brofton's uh, Last Night at DJ Saved My Life, which is a uh, huge, exhaustive set of interviews with everyone who ever played records in a nightclub.
0: Amazing. Um, that sounds like a good recommendation. How about you use Um,
1: I just finished watching the Arsenal program on Amazon with Mikel Arteta and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've technically always been an Arsenal fan and that I was told by people close to me that I'm an Arsenal fan. <laughs> but now that they're at the top of the league table, or at least I still think they are, after yesterday, I'm not sure. Uh-huh. I'm yeah, die hard, bandwagon, have a have a jersey, that sort of thing. So I love that.
2: Bless
0: you. I'm a Spurs fan, so I won't
1: come on that.
2: <laughs> How about you, are here? I am, uh, like many, many people, watching House of the Dragon, and like fewer people, but more after they listen to this, furious that you have seen the first six episodes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have seen this, the first six episodes, and um, I saw the first few episodes of um, The Lord of the Rings, the Amazon series back to back in a cinema, That's a screen. <laughs> so there you go. Um, my escape. This is bullshit. Is- I was a wisecracking
2: pterodactyl. Why do I not get this
0: one? <laughs> um, watch if you like horror films. Watch the Terrified on Amazon. It's a it's an Argentinian um, horror film about a very banal bourgeois neighbourhood in which several houses become possessed. I haven't. Flinched away from the screen, or or screamed, or genuinely been disturbed afterwards for a long time after a film, and this did it for me. And that's the end of this this week's bunker. Thanks to Yasmin Serhan.
1: Thanks for having
0: me. To Justin Quirk. Thank you, Alex. And to Aheer Shah. Thank you. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full length show this time next week. If you like what we're doing, support us on the Crowdfunder Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Thanks for listening. We will see you next time. The Bunker is produced and presented by Alex Andreu with Justin Quirk, Jasmine Saran, and Aheer Shah. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofranievich, and me, Alex Reese. With assistant production by Kasia Tomaszewicz. Our marketing manager was Gene Richard. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmaster's
1: production.